This is Martin Strong in for Ben O'Hara Byrne. Ben will be here tomorrow. And uh, if you'd like to send us a text, they've given me access to the texts. You can uh, send me a text at 877-399-9898, 877-399-9898. Maybe you've been seeing a lot of that coverage of the Johnny Depp trial. Maybe you have some thoughts, 877-399-9898. And uh, speaking of free speech, uh, as we hear that phrase more and more, the definition gets a little muddier. What exactly is free speech? I guess it's who you talk to. Uh, in the old days, it was a lot simpler. You know, our choices for getting news was uh, newspapers, TV, and radio. But now with social media, news has become all about the chat room. The news has moved to the chat room, the echo chamber, where information can resonate in profound ways. Uh, sometimes it's just blatantly false information. Sometimes it's you know, like the strict language of ideology that is being policed. Uh, and now that one very high profile and very wealthy person is about to control Twitter, what's that going to mean? Elon Musk says he wants to return free speech to Twitter. But what does that even mean? Give Donald Trump his platform back. Uh, my next guest believes it's something much bigger than that, and it may have big implications for global politics for years to come. Kaveh Sharuz is a lawyer and senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canadian Interests Abroad. He is also a former advisor on human rights to Global Affairs Canada, and he's just written a really interesting op-ed in the Globe and Mail about what Elon Musk can do if he really wants to strike a blow for free speech when it comes to Twitter. Kaveh is with us now. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. It's very good to be with you. Yeah, so I, I'm, I'm really interested in your take on all of this and your advice for Elon Musk. But my first question is uh, a sort of a broader question. What do you think when you hear people throwing around that phrase, free speech, on the internet and, and people claiming that, oh, he's going to bring it back. Um, what does that make you think? Well, I mean, I think it's really important to have free speech, and I don't think um, people are wrong when they say that free speech has been under attack um, in a lot of our institutions. Um, I think increasingly, both from the left and the right, we're being told that there are certain things we can't talk about. Books are being banned. Again, this is not a left or right issue. I think extremists on both sides are trying very, very hard to narrow uh, the amount of information that's accessible to people and uh, things that fall outside, um, you know, what they deem to be ideologically acceptable has been, uh, you know, those things have been have been very limited. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that Elon Musk is talking about bringing free speech values back to Twitter. I, I hope he succeeds in that, but um, I think it's going to be a very difficult task. Yeah, and there, there have been some interesting cases uh, on Twitter, and not just the really the ones that get all the the press, like them, you know, taking Donald Trump off of Twitter. But there was also uh, a New York Post article that they pulled about Hunter Biden, which they later admitted was a mistake. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think uh, Twitter. You know, I, I don't want to question anyone's um, intentions, but. Even if they had the best intentions, I think they've gotten things wrong a lot. Um, the Hunter Biden story that, that you pointed out, 
Um, you know, they would not allow the story that was about, you know, the content of Hunter Biden's emails and, you know, that, that, that hinted at some corruption. Uh, Twitter would not allow the story to gain any traction online. You know, we couldn't even you couldn't even send it via direct message to a friend of yours. And the New York Post, the outlet that reported the story, had their account locked uh, for several weeks during the lead up to the election. Uh, you know, subsequently, it turned out that the allegations in the story were absolutely true. But, uh, you know, Twitter took this step and it may have had some serious implications for the outcome of that election. And this was a this was a case of, you know, pretty blatant um, interference with speech. And, uh, you know, I, I think this is the kind of thing that social media platforms have to be very careful of. I know they want to moderate speech to keep the platform healthy, but, you know, it can have some very negative consequences. Are you concerned that Twitter will now be owned by one person and not just one person, but a very wealthy person and a very high profile opinionated person? Well, you know, I, I, I am concerned about that. I don't think our uh, social media platforms, which increasingly are really the town square, they're really the places where conversations happen, should be controlled by, um, you know, incredibly wealthy people who have a profit motive. Um, but the issue is, you know, I think we're hearing this discussion a lot these days, but people don't often mention that Twitter is, you know, even at the moment before Elon Musk takes it over, is owned, uh, you know, it's a public company, but its main shareholders are, are you know, large um, hedge funds and, um, you know, Saudi investors and so on. So it's not like it's a, you know, it's a publicly owned platform that's uh, doing the public good. I mean, it's still a profit maximizing institution right now. Right. And, and it's not incredibly profitable. Is it? It's 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 still kind of sort of in a way struggling to become what it's valued at, and is that a concern? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think my understanding of of the business side of it is a little bit limited, but my understanding is the same as yours that it's not at the moment um, an incredibly uh, an incredibly profitable endeavor. But um, a couple of things. One, I think the data that it manages to gather from people can potentially be very valuable. Um, and secondly, I mean, it's really where the where the international conversation about a lot of matters takes place. You know, if you want to talk politics, if you want to talk, you know, important cultural issues, that's the forum in which it happens. And I think that has a lot of value uh, to a potential owner. Right. And uh, we're talking to Kaveh Sharouz, who is a lawyer and senior fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad, and also a former advisor on human rights to Global Affairs Canada. And you wrote this op-ed in the Globe and Mail, and it basically had a, you know, the main core of your message was what Elon Musk should do. And, and tell us what, what you, if you had him in a room, you would tell him to do first and foremost with Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would tell him that, look, he's got a very difficult job ahead, and I think any place that he draws the line about what speech is and is not allowed is going to um, anger one group or another. But there is one thing that he can do um, and one very clear line that he can draw that I think would be a blow for free speech, and it would be this rule. If you run a government that does not allow its citizens to use Twitter, then you, as the head of that government and your government officials and your media, should not be allowed to use Twitter, which is would be a significant change from um, you know what occurs on Twitter right now, and that's what I argued for in that Global Mail piece. Right. So, I mean, the, the obvious thing, we, the first thing we will look at is is Russia, Vladimir Putin, or or at least Twitter accounts that are linked to the Kremlin, who are you know clearly sort of supporting his ideas. Uh, they're allowed to post to Twitter, but the people in Russia are being blocked from Twitter, so they can't read it. That's correct, right? 
That's exactly right. And the effect that this has is that it turns Twitter, um, again, again, contrary to perhaps the intentions of the people that run Twitter, but, you know, in effect, it turns the platform into a propaganda channel, right? So government officials and media affiliated with the government, so, you know, RT or Sputnik, you know, these media can be out there pushing the Russian line. But there is no pushback from the ordinary citizens within Russia, um, which is kind of what you would expect when there are, when free speech values dominate a platform. You would expect to be back and forth. You know, government would put out one viewpoint, people would push back on it, and the audience would get to decide what's true. That is not what's happening at the moment on Twitter with respect to Russia and a, and a, and a few other dictatorial regimes. So let's talk about those other dictatorial regimes. Everyone thinks of of Russia and I guess China. What? Who? Who are some of the biggest um, the offenders in this case? Yeah, I think China is the other one, and I talked about Iran as well. So China is an interesting case. Um, China blocks access to a lot of internet sites, including Twitter. So a lot of information just simply can't um, get into China, and ordinary Chinese citizens can't engage with the rest of the world freely. But Chinese officials. Um, and Chinese media are out there, and they're very aggressive in their Twitter usage. I mean, they're out there uh, pushing COVID-19 conspiracies. They're out there uh, pushing memes that um, sort of heighten divisions in the West. Um, they're out there taking you know, a lot of shots at the Canadian government, for example, during the, the period with, uh, uh, you know, where, where the two Michaels were in, were in prison in China. You know, the Chinese um, diplomats were very uh, aggressive in their in their messaging, and they can do this, and again, expect no pushback from Chinese citizens because Chinese citizens simply cannot, can't get onto the platform. So again, it becomes um, a propaganda channel for uh, these dictatorial regimes. Yeah, and uh, when we come back, I want to ask you about something that happened today. Russia's foreign minister saying uh, something about uh, Hitler being part Jewish and uh, just more of that kind of propaganda that's being pushed with this, you know, the Ukraine situation. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about that and more about uh, Twitter and Elon Musk when we return with Kaveh Sharuz, a lawyer and senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canadian Interests Abroad. That's when a little more conversation uh, with Ben O'Hara Byrne, except I'm the guest host today. I'm Martin Strong. Uh, ben is back tomorrow. And we'll have more uh, with Kaveh right after this. And I'm your guest host tonight, Martin Strong. Ben is back tomorrow night. And uh, we're talking about Twitter. They are about to get a new owner, Elon Musk, and our guest, Kaveh Sharuz, a lawyer and a senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. It's a nice handle. Um, we're, we're talking about uh, what, what Elon Musk should do if he really wants to, to make Twitter uh, a bastion of free speech, and and basically in your article you you said quite quite simply, quite plainly that dictatorial regimes who don't allow their people to read Twitter shouldn't be allowed to post on it. And I guess that's the bottom line with social media. It's supposed to be a two way conversation. That's exactly right. Uh, you know, I, we were talking before the break about free speech and free speech values. Um, I'm not proposing that every politician that I disagree with be kicked off be kicked off Twitter, uh, but I think free speech values would dictate that um, a variety of voices be heard. And the situation that we have right now, as I was mentioning before the break, is that you know certain dictatorial regimes, not all of them, but certain dictatorial regimes, uh, put their thumb on the scale. They themselves they give themselves the right to propagandize and put their views out there, but deny that right um, to their uh, population. I 
spend a lot of time working on human rights in Iran, which is my country of birth. And it's incredibly frustrating at times when mass protests break out. The government shuts off Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and, and in some cases goes so far as to shut off the Internet for the entire country. But its foreign minister and its functionaries um, are still out there propagandizing and putting their version of events out to the world. And, you know, a lot of people see that and believe that to be the case, whereas if the Internet was freely available, I think you would get a very different picture. So free speech values would require that you actually be able to hear from everybody um, and then make up your own mind. And that's what's lacking at the moment. Well, what about the Donald Trump situation? I mean, Donald Trump spreading uh, uh, the the fact that he believed <laughs> i call it a fact that that he actually won the election when there's no there's no evidence of that i mean is that the time to turn somebody off or or how can you allow somebody in such a powerful position to spread information that uh you know is believed to be false i mean at what point do you draw the line yeah i mean that's the million dollar question and i would be lying if i said i had an answer to that and i think Elon Musk is going to have a very tough time trying to answer that question as well. I think he's underestimating how difficult this question is. Um, when it comes to somebody like Donald Trump or, or similar types of situations, um, you know, my view is we ought to um, allow controversial opinions, obviously, up to a certain point, up to the point where it seems um, very, very likely that opinion is, is going to cause violence or is going to significantly undermine democratic practices and norms. And I think... Um, you know, in, in my personal view, Donald Trump crossed that line. And so I don't see it as a gross violation of, of uh, free speech when Donald Trump is not allowed to be on Twitter. However, um, I think it is very unusual that Donald Trump is not allowed to be on Twitter. But, you know, functionaries of these regimes that I mentioned that do far, far worse, they're allowed to be on. So I right. think part of the reason why I make this argument is that if you want to keep somebody like Donald Trump off Twitter, then it then it's really important that you keep, you know, dictatorial regimes like Iran and China and Russia off Twitter as well, because otherwise you'd be very rightly accused of, of hypocrisy and a double standard. Right. And with Russia, uh, a lot of the the propaganda, I, I, I would say, that's coming out regarding the war with Ukraine uh, involves the fact that they claim to be denazifying Ukraine. And uh, today they were pushing that the uh, the foreign minister, and he, he said something about uh, Hitler being part Jewish. Uh, I mean, when you hear something like that, what do you think? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a disgusting lie that uh, the, the Russian government puts out there, and it's been doing that repeatedly. Um, again, I, I'm more on the side of allowing you know, speech to, to be out there, um, and I don't think Twitter should, should necessarily clamp down on these things so long as you know, Russian, ordinary Russian people are allowed to be on as well to give their view. Um, but I think, uh, you know, generally my view is that the, the solution to really horrible speech like the kind you just cited is more speech, better speech. And I think over time people will begin to realize that some outlets are better than others, that Russian uh, propagandists aren't to be believed. I think in the long, long term, um, these things tend to reach an equilibrium and people figure out good sources of information over bad ones. And do you, do you kind of think the human race is sort of learning how to deal with the Internet still and that maybe uh, we'll get to the point where sort of a lot of, you know, sort of strange conspiracy, conspiracy theories that are being thrown out there that are so ridiculous that are getting traction? Do you think it's a, like a learning curve for, for humans and that we will slowly get better at this? 
<laughs> Absolutely, I do, though I don't often feel that every morning when I log on to Twitter <laughs> and see what's happening there. But I, I think that's exactly the case. I mean, every time there's been a technological advance um, in communication, we've had to go through this learning curve. You know, when books were published, magazines, television, and so on, we had to adjust ourselves as, as a civilization, basically, uh, to figure out how to communicate using this new medium. Um, obviously, social media has just taken this and, and, and ramped it up and made it exponentially more difficult because the global... Um, you know, the global scene is now entirely connected. Um, and so it's going to take us a long time. I just hope that we don't end up destroying our democracies and destroying our way of life in the process and, uh, you know, ripping apart our social fabric. And what's your biggest fear, uh, the worst case for Twitter? And what, what's your biggest fear in terms of world politics because of social media? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I fear that, um, you know, there, there are going to be non-democratic voices um, that are going to proliferate on these sites, and by virtue of bad content moderation, by virtue of you know a, a site like Twitter um, getting too heavily involved and putting its thumb on the scale, that that people will begin to lose faith in institutions. I think part of the reason why the populist appeal, um, why, why the populist messages appeal to so many people, is that they see these institutions um, like tech companies, like the media, as being somewhat corrupt and, and trying to push an ideological agenda. And I think um, Twitter, the best it can do is try not to get ideologically involved in any of these fights, but allow as much speech as possible, you know, up to a, up to a reasonable point before, you know, violence breaks out. I think if, if they manage to do that, I, you know, we can have a, we can reach a healthy debate eventually. Right. And do you, do you think that, um, that Elon Musk might get into trouble, uh, you know, being too far to one side, like too far to the left? Or, or something um, like that. Well, I mean, he's, he's, he's certainly not accused of being too far to the left. He, if anything, he's accused of being too far to the right. But, you know, ever since he got into this uh, Twitter uh, purchase, um, he's been saying all the right things. He, you know, the day after the, the purchase was announced, he said, you know, I really hope even the people that disagree with me will stay on the platform because that's what free speech requires. So he's, he's giving all the right talking points, and I hope that he adheres to that, and I hope that his opponents um, hear his message and continue to engage and... Um, Hopefully, you know, through dialogue, we, we managed to work out the problems that exist. Right. We are uh, we're talking to uh, Kave Sharuz, a lawyer and uh, senior fellow at the McDonnell-Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. And uh, where can people find you on Twitter? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Maybe you don't want to um, say. I, yeah, no, I, I, I can be heard. Uh, you know, putting out my views and fighting fighting people on Twitter at K Sharuz, K S H A H R O Z. Right on. Well, thank you so much. Uh, a really good read in the Globe and Mail, and uh, I urge people to go f- check it out. And thanks for talking to us. Thank you so much.